Now we enter into the second half of the book of Daniel. This is the second division, which is Daniel chapter 7 through 12. In this second division, the book shifts from narrative stories to the visions that God gave Daniel concerning the future of the Jewish people. Daniel 7 is a general look at the coming of the pagan nations that would rule over Israel, where the chapters after that, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, focus more on how the Jews would be affected by these nations. All the chapters have as the focus the persecution of the Jews by Antiochus IV. The main focus here is that Yahweh would bring all nations under judgment and establish his kingdom on earth forever. The big idea is that this is the nations and how they directly affect Israel. Daniel 7 is a very general perspective of the nations. So what's going to happen is we see all four nations, Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, and then the Greeks. Chapter 8, he's going to zoom in more on just the Persians and the Greeks and how they're going to affect Israel. And then chapter 9, he's going to zero in even more on just the Greeks and how that affects Israel. And then chapters 11 and 12, he's going to zero even more on the Seleucids, which were a sub-kingdom of the Greeks and how that directly impacts Israel. So he's zooming more and more and more on the Greeks, funneling down to them and the Seleucids. At the same time, it becomes more and more detailed. That kind of gives you the perspective of how things are working in these chapters. Chapter 7. In my opinion, I think this is the most important chapter in all of the First Testament. And, and as we go through this, I think you'll see why. This passage is so important. And it is the foundation for the Gospels. I mean, everything in the First Testament is the foundation for the Gospels. But this is a huge, huge building block and the foundation for Jesus' ministry. And so that's what we're going to go through. Now, we're not going to exactly hit that significance tonight, most likely. But this is a very powerful, very cool chapter. In the first year of King Belshazzar's, of Babylon, Daniel had a dream filled with visions while he was lying in his bed. This goes back, and this actually takes place before chapter 5. So his, chronologically speaking, this vision happens before chapter 5. It's in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. And Daniel has this vision. So that's the other thing you need to understand is we often think like, okay, Daniel lived through his entire life. He went through all these kings. And at the very end of his life, at a very old age, he started having all these visions, vision after vision after vision. But when you read these, you realize when he says in chapter 7 this year and chapter 8 this year, you realize that these visions actually were scattered and separated by two, three, four years in a lot of cases. So right before chapter 5 with Belshazzar, he had these dreams and these visions. He wrote down the dream in summary fashion. So this is a summary. Daniel explained, I was watching in my vision during the night as the four winds of the sky were stirring up the great sea. Then the four large beasts came up from the sea and they were different from one another. So the first thing he says, I was watching. This appears twice. It appears here showing that this is a significant thing that's about ready to happen. It's the significance of behold which is used a lot in the First Testament. 
But it's also mentioned right before the Son of Man figure appears. Or, the, uh, sorry, the throne of God. Showing that this is a climactus. So there's two pivotal moments. The first pivotal moment I was watching is when these strange things start coming out of the sea. The second pivotal moment is when the throne of God comes down and crushes them, kind of a sense. And these are the two pivotal moments. These are the two parts. A couple things happen. It says the four winds stirred up the sea. The four winds are often used in the Bible to refer to the four directions of God's providence. The cardinal points of the compass, north, south, east, west, are often used to demonstrate power and sovereignty. All throughout the Bible, nobody ever really refers to themselves as controlling the four corners of the world or having power over the four winds of the world because no empire was ever that big. But for the first time ever, Cyrus claimed to be the king over the four corners of the world and the four winds of the world because he had built an empire that literally went north, south, east, and west and pretty much controlled all of the known world minus Africa and Europe and Americas. But no one could control that because that was crossing the sea and nobody had developed the ability to cross the sea and conquer like that. So he was the first person ever. What's interesting is that Yahweh has always claimed this as himself, that he is the God that is providentially in control of all four winds, all four corners. Now Cyrus is claiming that. But what God is doing is taking that statement back and saying, oh, but I'm still doing it better than you are. And that's what this vision shows. But the four winds also suggest providence. And the word for wind is the word ruach. And this is the same word that we see in Genesis 1-2, when we see the chaotic waters, but the ruach, the wind-slash-spirit of God, hovered over the waters and changed the water from chaos to a life-giving peace water that God then created out of. We also see this in chapter 8, verse 1 of Genesis, where the flood was raging and chaotic, and it was crushing the world, but then the Ruach, the wind of God, came and subdued the waters and they began to recede so that the boat could open up and human life could get off. So this Ruach, the wind of God, coming from the four corners, is God's providence. It's His hand. And what it's saying is, these kingdoms are only able to come into power because God has allowed it. God is immediately beginning the vision and saying, yes, these beasts represent different kingdoms. And they look like they're out of control. And one would think that, how, how could this happen, God? Where are you? Are you like on a break or something? But God's saying, no, 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 no. This is only happening because I allow it. This is only happening because I allow it. And notice he is churning up the sea. Now they come from the sea. The sea is always portrayed in the Bible as a symbol of chaos. The sea always represents chaos. And what you see here is, you can see this in several places. In Genesis chapter 1, we see this raging sea, it's chaos. And then God's Holy Spirit comes over it and subdues it and turns it into life-giving water. We see the chaos of the waters flooding the earth. And then God subdues it with His wind. We also see this in passages like Psalm 74. We see many, many passages in the Psalms and Isaiah where God says, he subdues the raging sea. He crushes the raging sea. He dries the raging sea back. Your throne rules forever on the raging sea. 
And over and over again, you see this idea of this imagery. I'll give you an example. Turn to Psalm 74, verse 12. You were here when we went through Genesis. I developed this a lot, of the sea being the raging chaos. Verses 12 through 14. He's talking about the nations. He's talking about the nations rising up against God. But they can't threaten God because God is sovereign over them. And it says this, But God has been my king from ancient times, performing acts of deliverance on the earth. You destroyed the sea by your strength. You shattered the heads of the sea monster in the water. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan. You fed him to the people who live along the coast. You broke open the spring of the stream. You dried up the perpetually flowing rivers. You established the cycle of day and night. And so you, there are tons and tons of passages of God defeating the sea and God defeating this seven-headed monster. Now, we know that God has never destroyed the sea. And we know that he's never had a battle with this dragon monster. So if it doesn't make sense literally, it's a metaphor. And the metaphor that's used is it's chaos. All through the ancient world, this dragon and the sea always represent chaos. And when even the gods are talked about as controlling the dragon and the sea. And because, think about it, even to this day, what is the most scary, uncontrollable thing in all of creation? The sea. Now, with all of our technology, we have never been able to subdue the typhoon, the hurricane, the raging sea. We have been able to, we've been able to master the earth. We've been able to even like redirect wind with wind tunnels and that kind of stuff on the land on a minor level. We've been able to cure diseases and that kind of stuff, but we've never been able to master the sea or death. Those are the two things that are completely out of our control. This is why Jesus walking on the sea was such a powerful statement of I am God. Nobody can walk on the sea and control it. Now think about the three scariest things in the ancient world. The three things that represent chaos was darkness, because bad things happen in the dark, even today. Talk to cops who work the night shift. The craziest things happen at night. Nothing good happens after midnight. The sea, because you can't control it, and it wipes things out in the Leviathan. This dragon dinosaur-like thing. Think about it. The disciples are on the raging sea rowing in the middle of the night and a raging sea and they see this figure out there and it looks like a ghost slash Leviathan coming out of the sea and they are freaked out of their mind. And then Jesus just walks on top of it like it's nothing and subdues it and all goes away. That is the most ultimate God claim in all the ancient world. There is no more powerful way to say I am God than doing that kind of stuff. Then what does God's throne sit on in the book of Revelation? The glassy sea is so calm that there's nothing raging because there is no chaos at all. God's throne has turned into glass. This is imagery used all throughout the Bible. The first thing that you know is that these are Leviathans coming out of the sea. They are chaos. And so what God is first communicating to you is no matter how structured you think these empires are, they've got their satraps and their governors and their providences and everything are laid out. They've got their laws and they pride themselves in their laws and they're orderly and structured and all that kind of stuff. But really deep down inside in their hearts, they are nothing but chaos. They are beasts. They are wild animals just destroying everything like Daniel's life. 
they've got these laws and they know they're doing it. And they're so confident this is going to bring peace to this war between religions and her kingdom. And what it really does is it throws his best friend Daniel into chaos and death. They have no idea what they're really doing. And what God is portraying is he's pulling back the veil. When you see the nations in your dream, Nebuchadnezzar, you see shiny, valuable statues. You see wealth and beauty and art and craftsmanship. And the world looks at our buildings and our governments that we've built and our towers. And we praise ourselves for look at what we've developed in computers and technology and the buildings that we've built and the laws that we've created and the institutions we created. And God is pulling back the veil and he's revealing you're all animals. You're nothing but beasts. This is all chaos. You think you have everything under control and all it takes is one teeny little COVID-19 virus and we're freaking out and we're thrown into other chaos and destruction and everybody in our government is like, we don't know what this is and we don't know what to do and we're just passing laws willy-nilly all the time. And God's saying it doesn't take much to bring you down. It doesn't take you much to bring you down. Because here's the thing. This is the point that God is making. When we self-deify ourselves and we put ourselves on pedestals and we pat ourselves on our back and we praise the works of men, we become less than human. We are no longer the image of God anymore. We are no longer glorifying Him. We are no longer expanding the garden. We are no longer making creation. We're no longer ruling subduing creation to look like God. And what we do is we just end up acting like beasts. And what is a beast? A beast follows its instinct. It just goes by its gut feeling. And it follows its instinct. And it's not ruled by wisdom. And it's not ruled by love. It's ruled by fear and anger. And that's how animals make decisions. They're ruled by their fear, their hunger, their anger, and their instinct. And they operate on that. And when we operate like that, we destroy. We saw this with Nebuchadnezzar. When he self-deified himself and went on his own instinct of promoting himself, he became chaos and life became insignificant. And he was willing to throw anyone into the furnace and sacrifice anybody for their power. And God is saying that when we make ourselves the image reflecting our own self, when an image reflects itself back on itself, we just bring chaos. And we become animals. We become beasts. We see shiny statues. God sees beasts. And the only way to become human again is to repent and surrender to the spirit and the wisdom of God and allow him to rule us and guide us. And we're no longer ruled by instinct anymore. We're ruled by the spirit of God. And this is the point that God is making in this passage. And we see these in our own nations. We have a lot of people making a lot of decisions and they're not thinking through the long-term consequences. And I'm not saying every decision they're making is bad. I mean, I don't know what's going on either, but I'm also not trying to run the world in my own wisdom. But they're making a lot of decisions that are hurting a lot of people. And suicide is climbing, and drug addiction is climbing, and domestic dispute is climbing, and it's becoming overwhelming, and our states are becoming bankrupt. And we're destroying lives because we're not thinking things through. 
And meanwhile, COVID-19 is still destroying lives and everything's complete and we're finally being revealed as the beast. Now, that's not meant to be a slam against specific leaders. I'm not saying that they're horrible, evil people. And I'm going to make this point. There's a very powerful statement that a commentator made in the book of Ezra or the book of Esther. It's not that these people are evil in themselves, seeking to hurt people. I don't think anybody in government's like, ha, 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 I'm going to destroy people and ruin them because I'm evil. That's like Disney cartoon bad guys, okay? But when we're not being led by wisdom and we're operating on knee-jerk reactions or we're trying out of fear to protect our power or our position or our comfort in life, or our bank account, or our whatever, our job, then that ignorance and that lack of wisdom becomes fertile soil for evil things to happen. Right? When you don't think with wisdom, and you don't submit yourself to the Spirit of God, who's the only one who can think long-term and see long-term consequences, when you're just knee-jerk reaction, or you're protecting your house, your comfort, your income, your power, your job, and that's all you're thinking about is protect, protect, protect what I have and what I've built and what I've accomplished. Then you make decisions without thinking about what God wants, what the most wise thing is. You're not thinking about long-term for everybody. You're only thinking about long-term for you and your protection. Then that becomes fertile soil for people to make bad decisions that do throw people in fiery furnaces or lion's dens. And nobody intended that to happen for Daniel to go into lion's den. It just did because we didn't think things through because he was only trying to protect his power of position, his position of power. I don't think anybody's evil and trying to intentionally hurt anybody. I just think we're trying to protect the wrong things and it allows fertile soil for evil things to happen. And that's what God is saying. And as a result, we destroy lives. We destroy lives. The first thing that God is painting here is that these are not glorious, well-structured, powerful, well-thought-out empires and kings that are shiny and attractive and that will save you and make America great again or bring hope or change. No party is going to save you. Ultimately, they're just following their instinct. And unfortunately, people get caught in the whirlwind of chaos and lives get destroyed, whether anybody intended that or not. And this book is going to keep going on, and it's going to show that one day God is going to bring an end to it. But at the same time, don't think things are completely out of control and there's no hope, because it's God who allowed this to come out of the sea. For whatever reason, we can take guesses based on why he's allowed it in the past, but ultimately we don't know why he's allowing this now. We can just know that he's allowed it, he's in control, and one day his throne is going to crush things and bring order because he's the only true subduer and he's the only true thing that's not really a beast. And only when we surrender ourselves to him can we truly be human, the image of God. These animals are already mentioned in Hosea chapter 13, verse 7. And in this passage, in the context, God is basically talking about how he's going to bring the pagan nations against Israel. That he is going to use the evil, the paganness, the corruption, the power-hungriness of these nations against Israel in order to take them into exile 
or Judah. Backing up just to get a little bit of the context, in verse 5, Hosea chapter 13, verse 5, it says, I cared for you in the wilderness, speaking of Israel and them coming out of Egypt, in the dry desert where no water was. When they were fed, they became satisfied. And when they were satisfied, they became proud. As a result, they have forgotten me. So God is making the point that I'm the one that took care of you. I'm the one that saved you. I'm the one that blessed you. But when you got blessed, you claimed that as your own credit. And you got proud. And then you forgot who really gave it to you. That's autonomy. So I will pounce on them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk by the path. I will attack them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will rip open her ch- their chests. I will devour them like a lion, like a wild animal would tear them apart. And so he specifically mentions all four of these beasts. The lion, the bear, and the leopard. And then that wild animal is an unknown, unnamed animal, describes the fourth beast. This is being taken from Hosea. Now you've got Hosea describing these animals, directly connecting them to the pagan nations. And then they're listed here in the vision. And one of the best ways to interpret visions is to see where these things are mentioned already in the Bible. It doesn't do us good to find in our cultural comparison and say, well, that's what it means in America, so da-da-da-da-da. And we, we were either intentionally or unintentionally guilty of that at times because we can't stop thinking like Americans. And that's hard. So we need to go back to the Bible. We need to go back to the culture. So not only do you see this idea of sea raging and chaos in the Bible, but now you see these animals listed and connected to the beasts. Now the third thing that's important for identifying these beasts is these are mutated beasts. There are no lions that have wings. There are no four-headed, four-winged leopards. There are no bears that are all like all out of whack unless they're mutated. And we know that mutations can happen where some animals have been born with extra, or humans have been born with extra fingers, or animals have actually been born with extra parts. But this is obviously pushed to an extreme when they have multiple heads. But the idea is that these are mutations. Now, according to Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, this would make them unclean. Animals, and so in the Leviticus, God makes it very clear that there are clean animals and unclean animals. And he gives a huge list of what is clean and a huge list of what is unclean. And the, the primary purpose of this is that you're allowed to eat and sacrifice clean animals. But you're not allowed to eat and sacrifice unclean animals. And the main thing that God is communicating this is the unclean animals represent those who are outside the covenant community of God. And the clean animals represent the people who have put, given their faith to God and become a part of the covenant community. So in the ancient world, it would be the Jews, covenant community, clean animals, and the Gentiles, unclean animals, and not part of the covenant community. Today, it would be the believers who have accepted Christ, clean animals, and the unbelievers. Now, in the First Testament, you are not allowed to mix with uncovenant or non-covenant people. God forbid that. But when the Holy Spirit was given to us, and when the Holy Spirit began to dwell in us, and now we actually have God with us constantly all the time, God gave Peter in Acts chapter 10 a vision of clean and unclean animals and said, go, eat, partake of them all. And then Peter's like, no, 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 I can't do this. I mean, this has been pounded in my head and our people's head for thousands of years not to do this. And then immediately who knocked on the door? A Gentile representing Cornelius, the Roman soldier. 
And Peter went and Cornelius received the Holy Spirit as physically proven by the fact that he spoke in tongues. So because they couldn't see the Holy Spirit entering him, he was physically speaking in tongues. So these passages make it very clear that the unclean animals represent the Gentiles, the non-believers, those outside the covenant community. And they're not allowed to mix because they don't have the Holy Spirit at that time to help keep them connected to God. Even mixing with unclean, non-believing people with the Holy Spirit still isn't, you've got to be cautious because they can influence us. But the other thing that God made very clear is that God only accepts animals without defect or without blemishes for sacrifices. And anything that was mutated was considered unclean because that's not the way that God designed animals nor created them. That's a result of sin entering into our genetics, which they don't know about genetics back then, but and mutating things. So all these things are pointing to the fact that these are unclean, unnatural, unholy things that God never intended creation to be. Then they come out of the sea, which communicates the idea that it's chaos and destruction and it's disorder, and God creates order. And then the fact that they're connected to the beasts of Hosea, to the nations, all this is communicating this is not what God intended the nations to be. This is not what God intended the humans to be. And they are now less than human because they're following their natural desires. And when they're described, they're described as ripping, tearing, and devouring all without conscience, without hesitation, without any remorse. And we have seen this. And if you're not a very good student of world history, we all have seen this with people like Hitler and Stalin and our own generations, that they just devour lives without conscience without hesitation, without remorse. And this is what God is describing. Now, as we go through, we're going to identify these beasts. But the main point, even though it's important to identify what nations these match up, for the, because why would God give us all these clues if he didn't want us to know? The main point is that these are not just four specific nations that God is trying to highlight, but these four nations become a typology for all nations after them. And that this applies to any nation who autonomously walks away from God and chooses to glorify themselves, they will become beasts just like this, and they will be dealt with just like these beasts. And that's the main point of this passage as we go through it.